I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello. Welcome everyone to this uh, London Review Bookshop live event. I'm very glad to um, to know that there are people from from all over the world. I'm James Meek, and I'm here with uh, Tariq Ali. Uh, Tariq is, in a way, he's he's. I mean, people say this lightly, a legend, um, and but in a way, it's 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 true. For for me, he's an embodiment of, of myth in the sense that it seems to me long before I knew who he is or, or what he does, even when I was very small, I knew his name. It was it was in the culture. Um, I could talk about the books he's written, the magazines he's founded, the protest movements whose face he's been, the causes he's lent his polemical power to. But what stands out in his life for me is the consistency of his voice. He's an intellectual of the left. He's lived a, a bright life in bright lights, but it always comes back to his determination to point out with a particular combination of anger and detail, the oppression of the weak by the powerful. Whenever there's a, a marriage of liberal democracy and aggressive military action, when the priest ritually asks whether anyone objects, that's Tarek's cue to speak. He is the master of the lucid objection. Uh, but I, I think the favorite thing I came across when I was preparing for this was John Lennon's admission that he wrote his song, Power to the People, because he wanted Tariq to love him. Uh, we're here to speak about Tariq's new book, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold, a collection of his writings about Afghanistan over 40 years, Beginning with the invasion of the country by the Soviet Union in 1979, and, and it's remarkable that he's been able to gather all these writings, each responding to a particular moment over many decades, and make them into a, into a coherent work without huge revisions. Um, I think this coherence comes from this consistency of his in attacking the outside interventions to which Afghanistan has been subject over this 40 years, first from the Soviet Union, then from the Taliban, which uh, you see Tariq as, as very much a creation of Pakistan and, and to some extent the United States. And then of course, from, from the United States itself. And I, I want to start with your ideas about American motives, um, because you were born and spent your early life in Lahore, in what is now Pakistan, but which when you were born um, was the British Empire. And when you talk about imperialism, you speak with the authority of someone actually born into an empire 
where you supposedly had the same rights as any other imperial citizen. But in fact, for explicitly racist reasons, you were denied the freedoms that white Britons, white Canadians, white Australians, white New Zealanders enjoyed. Um, now, at various points in your book, you speak about an American empire. Um, but in what sense do you think it is an empire? Isn't the point about empires that no matter how brutal and rapacious they may be, they want to hold, to keep, and to maintain in reasonably good order the dominions they conquer? Uh, you, you write in your preface to the book, written after America's withdrawal that's just happened, the fact is that after 20 years, the US has failed to build anything that might redeem its mission. So is America an incompetent empire or is it not really an empire at all? Well, it's a different sort of empire from the European empires. <clears throat> That's the sleight of hand that comes into play when the Americans for a long time and the Europeans um, decided that they were not an empire in the same way that they never used to use the word capitalism, James. It was always substituted by freedom or democracy till the collapse of the Soviet Union when capitalism became a, a triumphal word to use. <clears throat> and likewise empires, that when the European empires were collapsing after the Second World War, all the powers, the British first and foremost, Churchill himself, and the French uh, uh, too, and the others, the, the Belgians, appealed to the United States to take over their empires. So these were empires not initially created or built by the United States, but taken over because there was no other power left in the world who could handle them. And they feared that if there was a vacuum, there'd be communist revolutions, nationalist upheavals, which there were. So the United States took that over They'd always been an empire in relation to what they call their backyard, South America. But, <clears throat> and they'd conquered, extended US territory by taking bits of Mexico, etc. So they were an, a, a, a local empire, if you like. But on a global scale, they became one after the First World War and then slowly began to build that. Now, they don't run empires like uh, the British did or the French, which is send in large numbers of settlers uh, who then establish a bureaucracy, an army, win over local people and work with them. No, the Americans don't do that. I mean, they're more advanced, if you like, uh, more advanced imperialists in that they look from the beginning for local relays who can do their work for them. So they fund parties, they back up with the weaponry, build, help build armies, but not with their personnel until and unless it becomes absolutely necessary. <clears throat> and, you know, I think it's a different empire, but it is an empire and it might well last longer than the empires that were created by the European powers. And how did this manifest itself in Afghanistan and and why uh, why did they they leave at, at various points in your in your book you talk about um, America's desire 
for military bases, for um, a, a greater presence in the uh, Asia-Pacific region. Um, and yet, if that was of value, then they have simply given it away. I don't think they've totally given it away. What they have given away uh, is the idea of direct, inter direct military presence indefinitely. And it's very interesting that when uh, liberals in the New Statesman, uh, for instance, published several pieces uh, saying this was a disaster, the Americans were drawing from Afghanistan, they should have hung on to it without asking how come Britain, which is their model for an, an empire, couldn't hang on to India, couldn't hand on to, hang on to Africa, the French couldn't hang on to Vietnam endlessly. I mean, curiously enough, the American way of doing things is more suited to their place in today's world. That's how they do it. In Afghanistan and Iraq, they stayed on too long. And that, I think, began to worry elements in the Pentagon and amongst the imperial bureaucracy in Washington saying, this is going a bit too far. Uh, and so they had no option to withdraw. This doesn't mean that they will totally give up on it, uh, because already we've seen that soon after the withdrawal, uh, what the United States are saying is, no, 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 we want to maintain relations, we want to give aid, we want to do this, and the Europeans are backtracking very rapidly from having opposed the withdrawal to saying, no, we will build relations with the Taliban government. The reason for that is something that is new that didn't exist prior to the 90s, but that is very strong now, and that is the position of China, especially in Asia, but also globally on the economic front. And I don't think China represents a serious threat to US hegemony, but it is an alternative in the sense that quite a few countries, regardless of what their nature of the nature of the regimes is, look towards China as something they can cling on to. And in the book, I publish a photograph, the only photograph in the book, which is of the Taliban delegation hopping on a plane and flying to China to meet with the Chinese foreign minister and do attempt to do some sort of deals, which evidently have been done. This is what has brought the West back because they don't become China and Iran to become the key players in Afghanistan. What the United States does and will not relinquish easily is its hegemonic role in the world. It will carry on intervening sanctions, direct interventions, pressures in other ways like this new deal with Australia and Britain to encircle China with uh, nuclear submarines if necessary. So that is the way they've operated. And that position has suffered a heavy blow in Afghanistan uh, because of all the liberationist rhetoric that was used. But it hasn't meant the end of the US empire, as many people who indulge in wishful thinking are, 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 are saying. This never even happened after a much bigger defeat, James, which was the defeat in Vietnam in mm. 1975, when everyone said, this is it, that's the end. I have to say, I was one of amongst those who never said that. I said, it is a heavy defeat. 
and it will force them to rethink. But this doesn't mean it's the end of the U.S. empire or anything remotely resembled that. And that is still my view. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's controversial to say that the the rhetoric of American intervention in in Iraq, in um, in Afghanistan, in, in Vietnam tends to involve a great simplification of the country that is being invaded. Um, but isn't there a danger that we might be doing the same in reverse, that um, by kind of presenting America as this sort of metonymic um, entity, which has a, a deep um, and unswerving purpose, um, that we're ignoring the many different um, uh, tendencies and trends and conflicts within America itself, um, as evidenced by the most recent um, twist and turns, for example, but but on all sorts of levels, there are in fact different uh, uh, causes, different factions, different directions, different um, interests. Certainly, that is true, and that has always been the case. I mean, uh, Roosevelt had to fight very hard to convince Americans to intervene in the Second World War. There was a very strong isolationist tendency, including within the Democrats, and they weren't just Republicans. And even before that, the fact that geographically it's a huge country, it's a semi, it's a continent, uh, they feel they should, you know, most Americans are quite happy living at home. And the only way they learn geography is by being sent to invade countries. I mean, often they don't. If you talk to many of my friends, they haven't visited any other country apart from the United States. So there are these sort of geopsychological uh, effects um, as well. And then there is a current, the realist wing uh, in the American think tanks, you know, uh, uh, Chalmers Johnson, John Mearsheimer, basically the position, or Andrew uh, uh, Basevich, the position these guys have been arguing is that the United States should effectively only use force when it is, when it is threatened itself and not intervene in wars which have usually ended in disasters. As opposed to this, has been the view of the traditional imperialist bureaucracy, which thought after the collapse of the Russians uh, in 1991-92, uh, there would be a peace dividend was talked about and an end to war, but that never happened because they decided that they, they had to maintain US hegemony. So there is actually now a bigger US presence in the world, military presence, than there was throughout the years the Soviet Union existed. And the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Chinese turn to capitalism, which deceived the United States for a while, just opened up vast new markets for them as well. Uh, and they wanted to rule this world as best they could despite the disaster. So how long they will carry on doing it is an open question. I don't know. I mean, there were, um, there were, uh, I mean, it's funny, here we are talking, we're supposed to be talking about Afghanistan and we're talking about America. Um, it's, um, there were a couple of moments in your book that really um, startled me. Um, I mean, there are lots there that's interesting and surprising, but there are a couple of bits that really startled me. And, 
Um, one just sentence, it, it seemed almost like a kind of an entryway into a completely different book, was um, touching on what you've just said. Um, you said, in certain ways, it is the very spread of capitalism that is gradually eroding US hegemony in the world. Uh, and you kind of left it at that and, and moved on. And that, that was in 2008, uh, you were writing that. And, and I thought, you know, that, that's actually very far-sighted because um, that's certainly my take on, um, on what is going on. Um, but, um, I mean, would you like to talk a, a bit more about that? Because it, it seems to be slightly cutting across your, your discourse of, of the, the still all-powerful yeah. America. Yeah. Well, it, I, I, I insist America is still powerful, and I'll explain why. But that doesn't mean that it is still as powerful as it was economically. And then the question arises, the weakening of American econo economic power, how much is this related to its military presence? And that's the interesting debate. But the weakening of American economic power has largely been brought about by the rebirth, if you like, of China that the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, I remember very well when Gorbachev visited China during the Tiananmen Square business. Uh, the Chinese uh, leadership had a session with him, and they said, what you're doing is crazy. I mean, why are you handing Russia over? I mean, the Communist Party should push through all these reforms like we're doing and uh, maintain some degree of stability but you've just given everything away. And Gorbachev said it's too late now to do everything else. And the Chinese told him it's never too late. <laughs> you know, you just, they were quite sharp and, you know, as events showed, not completely wrong. They said you will break up your country and that is what will never happen in China. But in any event, the Chinese decision to push through their reforms avoided all the uh, extremism, if you like, and the horror show which Russia had to undergo, the shock therapy. The Chinese debated it, were advised by some American economists to go for it, but ultimately they had a powerful team of economists themselves who debated semi-publicly and said shock therapy is not the way we are going and we will do it our way. And they've done it with all its good sides and its uh, its bad sides. And this has made China the workshop of the world. I mean, its goods, uh, consumer goods are everywhere, all over the world on every single continent. And this has suddenly begun to alarm the United States, or not suddenly over the last 10 years, uh, as this carries on. So China is prevented now by sanctions. For instance, the Huawei case, uh, and uh, providing new uh, global networks um, by open pressure and, and, and actually sanctions, uh, which are backed by the West, so-called, which is the EU, Britain, and the United States. But the Chinese are there, and that is why they feel threatened. But I think they feel threatened that they have never had an capitalist economic rival on this scale ever before. Europe didn't amount to it. They were basically, even now it doesn't. But China is a continent virtually. 
you know, on the same scale as the United States, and they do feel threatened by it economically, and they have no mechanism, they have no real leverage over the political leadership except economic pressures or war. Uh, war would be crazy for any American leadership to even contemplate a war either on Taiwan or have praised adventurous uh, uh, expeditions into Xinjiang, but they do think and they do talk about it, which means they're threatened. But the point I'm coming to, James, is that in terms of military strength, the United States is still ahead of the next seven countries below it. And these countries include China, Russia, India, Israel, etc., etc. So there is no challenge face to that. And that is the their ultimate, if if they really feel Britain, they will use this. Um the other thing that um, that really um, surprised me um, in your book, um, you, you have this this quite consistent um, to get back to Afghanistan. You have this quite consistent um, determination that um, military intervention is a bad thing. Um, we should leave Afghanistan alone to um, to determine its own future, and however long it takes. Uh, and there is an interesting point where you 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 talk about other countries where um, you know, the world has just sort of waited it out um, and, and the results have been relatively benign. Um, South Africa, you mentioned Indonesia and I think Chile as well. Um, but, but then there's a point at which you say um, that uh, back, I think this is in 2008 again, um, when you're saying, yes, obviously America must leave, NATO should leave. And then you say Pakistan, India, Iran, Russia, and possibly China could guarantee and support a functioning national government, uh, pledge to preserve the ethnic and religious diversity of Afghanistan and create a space in which all its citizens can breathe, think, and eat every day. It would need a serious social and economic plan to rebuild the country and provide the basic necessities for its people. Well, I mean, there's so many questions um, that that um, sort of provokes. And of course, you know, the first one is, well, America has left, NATO has left, um, and these countries have not been encouraged to form any kind of um, uh, force, such as you mentioned, and nor have they organized one themselves, as far as I know. Um, and would Afghanistan really be ready to uh, take another um, set of, of countries uh, bossing it around? I don't think they would like to be bossed around, but it would be foolish to imagine that over the last 20 years, the new generation of Taliban supporters is exactly the same uh, as they were either when the Soviet Union invaded and then left or when the United States came in in a big way. Uh, there has been shifts in movements, not only on the part of the Taliban, but also on the part, I mean, some of the countries I mentioned, uh, the Indians are out of it now, so there's no question of them playing any part uh, at all in Afghanistan, and they are very aware of that. But a big shift that has taken place is Iran, 
When the uh, United States invaded Afghanistan, or Iraq for that matter, Iran was a supporter of those, both those invasions and intervention. People tend to forget that. I mean, both Iranian apologies and the West, which denounces Iran and those who defend Iran as a sort of you know, semi-model state. But that was the position of Iran. It was very strict in defending what it saw as its known national interests. Uh, Saddam was an enemy in Iraq. The Taliban were the enemy in Afghanistan. Let the Americans deal with them, and they backed them. Had they not backed them in Iraq, it's very unlikely that the Americans could have succeeded. Mm. Uh, uh, and in um, in uh, Afghanistan, they couldn't have stopped it, but they could have subverted it. Today, the Iranian position is very different, precisely because of what they've endured at the hands of the West. They thought being friendly with the West, uh, they'd, they'd have a deal. Uh, Obama promised a trip to uh, Tehran, like Nixon to Beijing. Uh, and they assumed that were that to happen, then they'd do a nuclear deal. And the hardliners said, don't do a nuclear deal, because once you give all that up, you're just prey to them. This is why countries like even North Korea feel tough because they've got the weapon. The Iranian leadership divided a majority that go for the deal and abandon the nuclear uh, weapons idea. In the face of this, for the United States then, under basically under heavy Israeli pressure, do not do a deal with Iran from their own point of view. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It was crazy. And that really, that kick that the Iranians receives with sanctions now being in place for years meant that they were fed up with the West. They weren't going to do anything the West wanted them to do, and they were defending them. So over the last 10 to 15 years, they've been talking to the Taliban consistently. And my information is that they've even suggested to the Taliban that constitutional governments are not such a bad thing. Look at us. The West doesn't like our form of constitutional government, but we've got one, and it's not a bad thing. And you should have a constitution, an Islamic constitution like we do, have elections, limited, uh, etc. but elections, elected presidents, changes, debates within your own framework. What, whether they, so the discussions are going on. And the other thing the Iranians, I am told, have said to the Taliban is, we mustn't fight each other. This has been a well, I mean, I have heard that the, I have heard that the, the uh, fall of Herat to the Taliban was very much brokered with the, um, with the Iranians. Um, but isn't that, I mean, you, you, you're focusing here very much on Iran, but there are these no, other um, countries. And, yeah, I mean, no, isn't no. it? Isn't it, because um, I think in the very same passage where you're saying this, you're also saying um, uh, a, a partition of Afghanistan would be, would be a disaster, yet surely each of these neighboring countries has its own sphere of influence within Afghanistan. And there is that danger that you could have the Pakistan bit of, um, of Afghanistan, the Iran bit of Afghanistan, and the, and the, the Uzbek um, Russian uh, bit of Afghanistan. Uh, and um, I think the one thing Afghans still recently, till this last intervention, by and large, 
most of Afghanistan was opposed to the Soviet intervention. The left was a tiny force. It had no mass support outside uh, two or three cities. Uh, whereas what the United States succeeded in doing was what no one else had been able to do to Afghanistan before, dividing it into ethnic groups and using some of the op opponents of the Taliban both within the dominant uh, tribe, Pashtun tribes, and the Uzbeks and the others uh, to work against the Taliban. That has ended now, and clearly it didn't work. And the fact that the puppet army collapsed within 10 days, eight, nine days, 300,000 people just collapsed, didn't want to fight the Taliban, indicates that there is a sense of Afghan identity. I mean, all the Afghan constitutions never have an ethnic census. That question is never asked. You're an Afghan. And no one has ever demanded that it be asked. And the reason the Taliban won, in my opinion, and dominated the country is because they were the only people fighting against uh, the occupation. But James, coming back to Herat, and uh, the fall of that city, yeah, that's true. Without any doubt, it was the Iranians stole their people. You can't fight now. You have to work together. The Chinese will make it a condition that, and they are, that there is no, um, effectively, that there is no uh, basis for Xinjiang or any other uh, terrorist groups. Uh, and the Afghans have already agreed to that and said it publicly. And the Russians will, in their own interests, uh, prevent uh, the Uzbeks from backing, you know, crazy groups to create trouble. There is a genuine interest by these powers now, if you read what their press is writing, to try and create a, a stable Pakistan. Uh, what about <laughs> That's you. You said the word that I was going to ask you about. <laughs> a Freudian I think, slip. I think. Um, I mean, one of the themes of your book is your your genuine fear. Um, I mean, there's a certain sort of you know attachment, yeah, distance, I suppose, in most of the book. But when you write about Pakistan and Afghanistan, there's there's I feel a genuine unease on your part um, that keeps recurring that this could all. Um, come back, there could be an enormous blowback. And I mean, it has happened to some extent, I mean, it is happening. And, and um, I, I don't feel that you see anything anything good coming from Pakistan from what's happening there at the moment. Well, I think what is, is that during the 20 year US occupation, as you know, I predicted that Pakistan got involved and the Pashtun tribes inside Pakistan, in the Pakhtunkhwa, the frontier province with Afghanistan, were punished both by the Pakistan army and by drone attacks. They really were involved in the war. But this, interestingly enough, while the ISI created some jihadi groups as a cover in case they were needed, there emerged in Pakistan the self-defense Pashtun organization, PTM, Pashtun Tehreek uh, um, uh, organization, which mobilized, but literally 
hundreds and thousands of young Pashtuns, men, women, and some of older ones as well, who said, we don't want to be part of either this occupation or part military intervention. Leave the Pashtuns of Pakistan alone. And their popularity was such that the ISI turned on them, killed some of their leaders. But they still had two members of parliament elected from the tribal districts. So that, I think, is incredibly positive, that this didn't throw up a new jihadi current, as many were fearing, including myself, but threw up the PTN, which is probably the most healthy and most advanced political formation in the country today. There's nothing quite like it. So I am sort of not as pessimistic as I was several months ago or you know, some years ago. One of the, um, the sentences that really resonated with me, and, and you know, this is, I'm interested in your thoughts about Afghanistan rather than your thoughts about the West, but the, the sentence was, how can Western regimes busy dismantling the welfare state and privatizing everyone at home, create a social democratic paradise <clears throat> in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, there's huge food for discussion there, um, but um, just looking at Afghanistan, it's just to get from, from A to Z, um, from, from the, the base that they start with to that, goal that was kind of hung in the air during the occupation but was never really seriously um, implemented or looked at or, or even considered. Um, it's just where, where to begin, who is going to begin, if, if they are, uh, quite apart from the, uh, the politics of the Taliban um, and, and Islamism in general in, in Afghanistan, um, the, the problems go so deep. Um, Starting with with the patriarchy, uh, starting with the uh, the family tribal structure, um, starting with the atomization of of um, of, of tribes and uh, and clans, um, the, uh, the 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 drugs uh, the drugs business, which is which is so utterly dominant. Um, where where to begin with with the basics of healthcare, education, sanitation? Well, I think that most Afghans, if actually asked, <clears throat> what do you, would you like the most? Uh, whether they are political, non-political, Taliban, anti-Taliban, it doesn't matter. Most Afghans would say, we would like a, a small house to live in. We would like a modest amount of food. We would like our children, boys and girls, to be educated. The girls only in a school taught by women, but that would be their uh, condition. Uh, but that is what we would like. Now, is the Taliban government going to do that? It doesn't look like it at the moment, but it, we don't know what the discussions are that are going on. But the thing is, this could have been done by the Russians did it to a certain extent. They did build schools and hospitals. On this level, they were good. I mean, there's no, they did it mainly in the cities. They couldn't reach the countryside. <clears throat> but the Western occupation just abandoned all that. And the Washington Papers, uh, published in 2015, uh, more or less uh, sort of uh, repeated stuff that many of us, or some of us, had been writing about Karzai. I mean, they described, American generals described the Karzai regime as a kleptocracy. 
They said they were thieves, they made money, they spent our money to build huge mansions or take the money out, they did nothing for their people. And so it's, you don't have to be even on the left to see what was happening to that country as, the, as some astute um, Americans saw it. But look, somewhere in the book, I, at one point when I was thinking about these things very concretely and I discussed with architects, they said $5,000 can construct you a mud house with two or three bedrooms, toilet facilities, $5,000, James. You could have built two million of these to prevent people gathering in this huge new slum now that exists outside Kabul. Why didn't they do it? Because they didn't want to. That was not what their, what their interests uh, uh, were. And it's been a tragedy. And I hope there will be people who will be demanding this because it could be done. The Chinese could actually even insist on it. I mean, they've become very experienced in building medium-sized cities, but so could the Iranians, but we will see. I, uh, I mean, I, I, I should say that, um, that uh, if your view of the American occupation is, is very bleak, um, your view of the Taliban and your view of the Soviet occupation is not much less <laughs> bleak. Um, so it's, it's sort of bleakness um, for, for, for 40 years, really. Um, I mean, one of the, the things that I thought was, was quite surprising and interesting, just, just looking at the, the footage um, and reports from Afghanistan, after the Americans left, um, and, and I don't know whether I, maybe I'm reading too much into, into imagery, but um, I, I thought it was remarkable that I, I'd always associated the Taliban with a certain asceticism and a sort of rejection of materialism, um, partly because most of its members were very poor, um, but also partly because um, this was the, the way of the desert, the way of the prophet. Um, but I was interested to see how much sort of military fetishism that was going on um, with the Taliban. They, they were wearing American uniforms with seeming pride um, and pleasure, not because they were American, but because they were modern. Um, and this is what a soldier looks like with a, with a Kevlar helmet um, and, uh, and a flak jacket and camouflage uniforms. Uh, and there seemed to be real disappointment um, at the extent to which the Americans had, had uh, made so much of their hardware they left behind unusable. Uh, and I just wondered now, when I went to Afghanistan first in, in 2001, a few months after, a few weeks after 9-11, um, it, was, it was the Middle Ages. Not only was there no internet uh, or let alone mobile phones, there, was, there were no newspapers, there was no radio. There was absolutely, there was absolutely nothing. And now um, the Taliban, have to uh, exist with uh, with the internet, with with the mobile <clears throat> phone, uh, with with consumerism, uh, and I just wonder whether this is a force worth considering. Um, <clears throat> you might call it gulf, gulfism. Um, this idea that a, a wall of money from um, and and consumer goods will will ease the pain somehow. Well, James, if you look at Saudi Arabia. Everyone in Saudi Arabia, every Saudi, every migrant worker has a phone on which he or she can watch movies, can talk to friends, and non-stop communication. 
Now, the country that had this impact on the Taliban in 20 years ago, the, which had the most impact, were the Saudis. Uh, so a lot of Afghan migrant workers who went to work in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf see this sort of strange hybrid capitalist modernization that has taken place, which has trickled down to a certain degree. Uh, and they copy it. I mean, that's very interesting to see the the, the uh, Taliban delegation which met in Europe with the Americans and NATO a couple of times. They were all sort of wearing kitted out in the latest the designer suits, had their cell phones, not at all the image of the Taliban you have. And the world has changed and they know it. How they will relate to it, I don't know. One thing you mentioned that we haven't discussed, which did mark a huge alteration in Afghanistan, which didn't help the poor at all, but helped a certain middle class layer, was that under the Taliban regime, before it was toppled, the Taliban and the Afghan government's share of the world poppy trade, opium heroin, was about 25, 26%. After 20 years of military occupation by the West, this has risen to, the figures vary between 85 and 95%. And this has been the only money coming in from indigenous crops. And that money, I assume, is still coming in and that it will be part of the Taliban uh, budget, though they claim that they want to stop it. But given they have no other money, I don't see how they, how they will. Yeah, my, um, my conversations with, um, with drug people in Afghanistan in the early 2000s suggested that the Taliban's commitment to heroin eradication was, uh, was more in the breach than the, uh, than the observance. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's been great, this, this conversation with you, but I, I now have to um, turn to questions from the audience. Um, and um, we do have some coming in. Um, I'm, I'm going to save uh, this great question from Cassia for a bit later because I think that would be a good one to end on. Um, but um, I'm going to turn to Duncan Wright, um, who asks, in your opinion, what uh, would the Taliban accept a constitution and, and what form would it take? Um, he, he says that um, it seems that they have adopted a constitution from 1964. I'm not sure if you're if you're aware of that, um, Tarek, or if you know anything about it. But I mean, what, what are your thoughts? You did mention already the, uh, the Iranian um, backing for the idea of a constitution, and you seem to suggest that maybe the Taliban are interested. Well, the 1964 constitution uh, would be more advanced, in my opinion, uh, 
I didn't know that they were discussing that, uh, would be more advanced than the Iranian constitution, to be perfectly honest, as long as they ditch the monarchy, because that constitution had a monarchy uh, uh, at the head, unless he means the 74 changes to that constitution, we dumped the monarchy and had a presidency. But anyway, that permitted elections of sort. But the, my, oh, I think they are, they do want a constitution. But instead of doing what many Latin American countries did, which is uh, electing a special assembly, a constituent assembly, decide on a constitution, they will do it themselves. And I, I have no doubt that the Iranians are giving them uh, a lot of advice on these matters. I mean, the Iranian advice on the question of women, despite their own regressive measures, they have not stopped women from working the Iranians in any field. You know, that is very noticeable in Shia Islam. Uh, yeah. So whether they can, uh, you know, helpfully suggest to the Taliban to follow them on that or well would make a big difference. But the answer is they will have a constitution lots of input is needed and whether it's coming in i don't know um, we have a, a comment here from an anonymous contributor which i'll read out you, you can respond to it if you if you wish um i don't agree that afghans did not want to fight the taliban and that they are nationalists that were fed up with the occupation it is a romantic view that is insulting to afghans they were okay with banning women from public life public hangings tajiks and hazaras being ruled by pashtuns um, well, the, I know this, this is a debate that goes on. I mean, the fact is, against that, you have to ask that when the Taliban began their amazing, in military terms and strategic terms, their amazing offensive, where were all these Afghans who we are told were hostile to them? They, they could have joined the puppet army and fought. They didn't do so. There was no alternative to the Taliban. At least we never caught sight of it. Now, I've never said that that doesn't mean there are people who are not hostile to them, especially amongst women, city women more than the country, but they didn't organize uh, particularly, unlike the Kurdish women, also from a tribal structure, who organized in the Kurdish part of Syria, set up women's con contingents, and maintained an independent position. Nothing like that happened in, in Afghanistan. So I think it is largely, the Taliban did, whether we like it or not, reflect what became of uh, Afghan uh, nationalism, which goes right back to the 19th century in the battles against the uh, uh, British. This does, my saying this doesn't mean I agree with the Taliban, I'm just pointing out to the, the situation that actually exists and not sort of building castles in the sky. Uh, Rupert Grist asks, um, some reports suggest that the nature and mix of ethnicities make Afghanistan ungovernable as well as unconquerable as a state. What's your view? Well, there are many countries with different uh, uh, ethnicities. I mean, neighboring Pakistan is one of them. Uh, usually in countries with uh, multi-ethnic groups, there's one dominant group. That is the case in, it's, they're never equal. In Afghanistan, it's the Pashtuns who dominate, uh, probably by a huge majority, 
So because they are not allowed to count the numbers of different ethnic groups in Afghanistan, we don't know exactly how large. But I, they worked together for, for some time, over hundreds of years, really, going back to the 18th and 19th centuries. And though ethnicity has been encouraged by uh, military, Western military occupation, if the issue is properly dealt with, I think it can be sorted out. I mean, they hear the largest, largest ethnicity, the Pashtuns, have a huge responsibility. It is up to them to take the initiative. Um, I mean, one of the things about, one of the terrible things about this, this war that has gone on for so long is that it has come to to define Afghanistan, and it's 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 impossible almost even even if you go, it's almost impossible to sort of see beyond the war uh, and the, the the scars it's left behind. This kind of entire scar tissue covering the whole country. It's it's so hard to see what the country was, what what there is there that is not a a country at war, um, and um, I mean, I, I had a friend at university uh, who, in, in the early 80s, who treasured this poster um, that said Afghanistan, land of peace. Um, I suppose that came from the days of the of the hippie trail. I mean, I was interested to see that you crossed the border into Afghanistan in 1973. Um, I mean, what was your first encounter with that country? What was your impression? I'd gone before that for a weekend. Uh, with some friends when I was still living in Pakistan, because Kabul was the most liberated city uh, in northern, in the whole of Pakistan, compared to Pakistan, and the discotheques were very good. So uh, in order to go and uh, have a drink and dance, we used to skip into Afghanistan and not tell our parents and come back. Uh, uh, so that was Kabul, very much like a Persian city, like Tehran before the uh, uh, before the Iranian Revolution. Uh, so you would get in your car, you drive through the Khyber Pass on a Friday night. Yeah. You get to Kabul, quite a long way. Um, yeah. You check so. into a hotel. No, you'd have, it stay, sounds like a sounds like a film. It, it, okay. it, yeah, stay with friends. In '73, I went for other reasons because the Pakistani government wouldn't, wouldn't let me fly from Lahore to Delhi uh, directly. They said you have to have the visa of another country. So I slipped into Afghanistan for a day or so to get their visa stamp on my passport so I could go. They still didn't let me, but never mind. That's another story. Uh, <clears throat> but there were the, the big difference uh, always uh, in Afghanistan and other countries in the region too, is that urban life was always very different from rural life. And rural life was dominated by old tribal customs. I mean, some of the things the tribes impose in terms of patriarchy is actually not in any Islamic uh, book. Including the the Holy Quran, it's not in there. These are old patriarchal tribal customs, which are important. The same with the tribes in Pakistan; they do virtually the same thing. Uh, so that you know has to be resisted, but that can't be resisted unless there is an educational structure that is established. 
which the Pakistani Pashtuns want to be established, the Afghans, I don't know, because I haven't been in there for a very long time. I mean, it's it's the journey that, that so many countries have, have known, the journey from the village to, to the city, uh, <clears throat> yeah. from the farm to, to the school, to university, um, and that, that river of people swells over time. Um, it happened here, it happened in America, it happens, um, it happens everywhere, but it, it's, it's been interrupted in Afghanistan. It's been interrupted for a very long time. It has been. That is why it's extremely upsetting. And you know, most people in the West have no idea what a fought, continuous 40-year war means. I mean, you would have to go back to the old Europe, 100 years war in Europe to even get a feel of that that different powers had been trying to wreck this country, tried to run it. And the latest has been the most destructive, the latest two, the Russian and the Americans, because of the weaponry now available. These are not old muskets, which Kipling used to write about. These are sort of bombings from the air, helicopter gunships, and now these dreaded drones, which can destroy a totally innocent family if someone's got some of the digits wrong. So Afghanistan has suffered horribly. And that mm. is what, what we, we should never forget. And it's going, not going to be easy to pull it out of this. It's going to take time. I would sort of myself, I would predict another 20 years free of war would begin to hopefully change the shape of the country. Um, Michael asks an interesting question. Um, and I'm not sure if this relates to the um, the cutoff in aid, um, but um, I guess that's kind of related to it anyway. Uh, and he asks, does freezing the Afghan government's assets represent a continuation of the war by other means? <clears throat> well, it does. And it's a very foolish thing to have done. They were punishing the Afghans for not having kept the agreement on having a national transitional government with some of the pro-Western people, but to which the Taliban leaders replied quite accurately, in my opinion, we were prepared to do that, but the president you put into place to head this government, Ashraf Ghani, packed three big jeeps with millions of dollars, hopped on a helicopter, and flew out to Uzbekistan from where he boarded another plane to the Gulf. So why blame us? We never told him to do this. He just went. Who could we have a transitional government with? So it was mean-spirited, having occupied the country for 20 years, then to cut off that. But I think that is going to be restored uh, fairly soon as they see what is going on vis-a-vis -vis China and Pakistan. Um, and an interesting one from Tony Lavender, um, who asks, how do you see the conflict with ISIS, Daesh, playing out? <clears throat> Quite honestly, uh, the, everyone says that this is a very tiny minority uh, and is hated by the Taliban and most other Afghan people. Uh, they, they regard it as a sort of foreign implantation. And there's no way it can be rooted out quickly except through, you know, stern measures being taken, I'm afraid. Whether the Taliban, how they will do it, um, uh, I don't know. 
But you know, James, the other thing one should tell people that the Taliban throughout these 20 years maintained contacts with lots of, I mean, for instance, I was told a story that in, in Kunduz, the only other independent group opposing the occupation, not by force of arms, but just politically, were a former Maoist group, which had also opposed the Soviet intervention. And they were there, the families who come, and often they would talk, be talking to the Taliban, exchanging information, what's going on. Then the Maoist, ex-Maoist families, uh, two daughters went and got jobs with the BBC in Kabul. They told their local Taliban friends, make sure our girls are looked after. They said, don't worry, we tell the Taliban commander in Kabul to look after them and nothing happened to them, mercifully. So it's there is communication on this interlevel within tribes uh, that sometimes transcends other differences as well. It's not as straightforward as people imagine. Um, there are many more questions coming in. Unfortunately, we don't have time for them all, but I, I did promise that um, we would end with um, with Cassia's question. It sort of takes us back to the beginning, really. This was the first question that came in. What would end the U.S. empire? <clears throat> I think the only thing that would end the U.S. empire is a political revolution inside the United States of America. When enough Americans feel that they've had enough of wars and sending troops out to be killed and killing other people, and that the only thing they will do henceforth is defend their own country and not try and run the world. When that happens, then that, you know, they would have withdraw their 60 or 70 bases they've got elsewhere and withdraw <clears throat> and pull out. But the Europeans don't want them to do that because the Europeans don't have the power, neither the Germans nor the British, to replace them. So the thing is, it, they, do they have to be replaced? I don't think they have to be replaced, provided the different continent, continental governments can reach agreements on their own. But to, that is because the war in Vietnam came to an end. Of course, the Vietnamese heroism and fighting one can never underrate or estimate, but what made the convince the United States that they could not carry on fighting that war was when they saw how many Americans on the streets of US cities were against it, and more importantly, how many GIs and ex-GIs, you know, on their crutches, wearing their medals emblazoned on chests, in uniform marched outside the Pentagon in 71 <clears throat> or 72, demanding outside the Pentagon, these uniformed people who had died and killed, that they wanted the Vietnamese to win. That was the big slogan. The NLF is going to win. And I always say to people that that would have created more panic inside the Pentagon than the US high command than any group of terrorists blowing up the Pentagon. This was far more dangerous. And that, I think, is the, the only way forward, is that when Americans wake up. I mean, isolationism has a bad name. <coughs> I know, but it's better. Better to let people learn from their own mistakes. Uh, except in and except in cases of 
you know, extremists where everyone can see something needs to be done. Even then, I'd rather local powers uh, did it, like the, you know, uh, toppling of uh, uh, Pol Pot by the Vietnamese was a beneficial thing. It's difficult to deny that, whereas the West was backing him, etc. But I'm very rarely in favor of foreign interventions. I think it disrupts organic political process. Better to be patient and see fewer people killed. I mean, there is this sort of nightmare scenario of, of an isolationist interventionist um, country. And in a way, that's what America has sometimes seemed to be in the past. It, it, it has its, its fortress um, and, and it, the drones come over, the B-52s come over, um, and then they go back again. The stealth well, the bombers. Only, yeah. Well, the only other option to that, the only option to that is for them to send in hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens to build the countries and settle down like the European imperialists did, and that didn't work either. In fact, it left scars which are debated and discussed to uh, to this very day. So um, my own feeling is that it should be continental powers uh, or countries which should uh, run their own continents rather than the United States trying to and, and that's what legitimizes um, uh, Iranian and Russian um, and Pakistani involvement in Afghanistan because they are they are local <coughs> as it was um, well in the case of Pakistan and Iran it's slightly different because uh, Pashtun tribes spanned the border that's how the border was created in 1893 by the British, the Durand Line, to divide the Pashtun tribes, uh, which had been inflicting defeats on them. The Iranian hostility is more recent. The Iranians were fine, till a particularly virulent brand of Islamism in the shape of the first Taliban took over and began to fight with Shias uh, and Hazaras and all this. So that is very recent. Um, and so that intervention is, in a strange way, part, part of the region and its history and its geography. I mean, Herat used to be one of the most advanced cities of the old Persian Empire. And beautiful calligraphy and poetry and things that these days uh, many Orthodox Muslims would object to. The first book which actually depicted the Prophet Muhammad's ascent to heaven and his famous meeting with Gabriel and what he saw on the way with depictions of the Prophet, actual depiction, was uh, in Herat, I think, in the 17th or 16th centuries. So all these areas are, in a way, interconnected and have been for some time. And I think that will that will uh, remain. Well, um, let, let's hope interconnectedness um, and peace wins out in the end. Um, thank you very much indeed, Tariq Ali, and thanks very much to everyone for joining us uh, during uh, what I found a very interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Um, just to remind you, you can, um, in, if this was a normal event, I would say please um, have a glass of wine and um, and uh, 
Tariq will sign copies of his book. Um, but it's okay, because I'm sure you have wine wherever you are. Have a glass of wine anyway, um, and rush to your um, computers and order um, copies of the book, um, preferably from the Al Abu Bookshop. Uh, thank you very much indeed for attending. Uh, we hope to get back to normal service in the sense of um, live bookshop events in the not too distant future, um, and perhaps even a hybrid event so um, ever more people can can be involved. Uh, so thank you very much indeed, um, and um, see you next time. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.